Well, good morning. It's a great time once again to be together to study the Word of God. I would just ask you as we begin our time, bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to attend to our time together. Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity once again in our day that we can open your Word and we can study together. Lord, these are interesting times as we have acknowledged over the last several months, and yet all that we do not know by way of our own insight, you know perfectly and you know every detail, you know exactly what you're accomplishing, how you are both encouraging, you are strengthening, you are even purifying your church, that it might glorify your name in the way that you require. You are showing the world just who you are and how they are so unable to help themselves. And so we pray that our time together would equip us, encourage us, strengthen us, give us wisdom that we might live with courage and strength in this world and also cause our lives to be a reflection of the truth of Jesus Christ, and that there is only hope in Him. There is no life uh, without Him, and there is no eternity uh, with you unless we know Christ by faith. And so we thank you for that understanding that you have given us. We ask you to open our ears and our hearts now as we open your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to our study of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 and our, our, our fascinating look really at the characteristics of false teachers. I don't know of any other subject that really is more important than the subject that we are in right now currently in our study of false teachers, particularly in the world in which we live, is it, it is imperative for us as Christians to be able to identify false information from that which is true information. It's much easier to be led astray by false information when we are unable or when we are ill-equipped at identifying false things. The best way to be equipped to identify false and that which is false teaching is to be well-versed in that which is true. It's the old analogy that maybe we've heard of in the past or thought of in the past about counterfeit money. The best way to understand how to identify counterfeit money is to understand what the true looks like. Anything that doesn't match the true obviously has some kind of counterfeit qualities. And so the best way for us to be equipped to identify that which is false is to be well-versed in that which is true. If we know the truth, then that very truth, if we will follow it, there's a caveat there, it does us no good to have the truth if we don't follow the truth. But if we have the truth and we follow the truth, it will protect us from being trapped by that which is false. And so the best way to be protected from the false is to be fully insulated and fully saturated with the truth. And of course, the truth for you and I as Christians is absolute truth. We have absolute truth because we have the Word of God. Uh, His Word never lies. His Word is never false. And so we, uh, at least I, attach that word absolute truth. It, 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 is, it is truth that is untainted by any kind of falseness. But there are those within evangelicalism, those within the world, who love to twist the truth. They love to use it to their own uh, advantage, to their own gain. Those who appear to be true. They appear to be true, but are in fact false. And so here in 2 Peter chapter 2, we are being warned about them. We are being warned as to the reality of them and being warned about their very character. And Peter has already said to us that just as there were false prophets among the ancient people, the people of 
uh, creation's past, even from his time, so too there are and will continue to be false teachers among us. We see that in the first verse of chapter 2. False prophets also arose among the people. He's speaking of the people of the ancient times, the ancient Hebrew people. Uh, his ancestors in history past. And just as there were false pr prophets there, there will also be false prophets and false teachers among you. And so we are being warned. This is a serious warning. We cannot think that simply because we are Christians, simply because we have faith in Jesus Christ, because we believe the truth of the Scriptures, because you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that because we are secure in our salvation, we cannot think that all we in life now will be just easy, that it will be as if we can just go on living our life and it will all be peaceful. No, that's just not the case. Satan, the Bible tells us, is a roaring lion. It's his characteristic. He's always seeking someone to devour. And he and his minions come in as those who appear as truth-tellers when in fact they are actually liars. So Peter tells us here in chapter 2 that they secretly introduce destructive ideas. They secretly introduce destructive heresies or doctrines and ideas. In other words, they blaspheme the truth with their own lives and with their own words. And the sad reality is, as we have seen here, and as you look at it in verse 2, many will follow their shaped words. Many will follow their false words and only to end up in shipwreck in their faith. They will be shown to never have been saved at all, potentially. And so this is a very serious warning to all of us. Now, beginning from the second half of verse 10, because we've, we've already spoken about all the things in verses 1 through the first part of verse 10. So beginning with the second half of verse 10 and running all the way down through the end of chapter 2, all the way down to verse 22, Peter is going to get very graphic in his description of false teachers. In fact, he is going to go so far as to say that false teachers are actually better off dead than alive. You notice in verse 12 what he says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Now, why would Peter be so graphic? Why would he be so serious and so graphic about this? It seems, doesn't it, rather extreme to say that someone is better off dead than alive. That seems rather harsh, especially coming from the mouth of a, a Christian, especially a Christian leader in the church. And yet we must remember that these are the words of God the Spirit. These are the words of God, the Spirit. Remember what Peter said to us back in chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, more than this being Peter's personal testimony and personal opinion about false teachers, this is God's assessment of false teachers. This is how God thinks about false teachers. It is God who is being graphic. It is God Himself who is serious about the truth. And therefore, when we look at these words and we, we see how graphic it is and how shocking it is, we can conclude that God loves those who are His own with such a love that anyone who would even attempt to draw them away from His Word is so dangerous, so heinous, that they should simply be removed. They should simply be taken out. And so we find in these verses 
these blasphemous liars who actually are doing the work of Satan against God, and they are being described as being under the constant fury of God's divine wrath, they are simply creatures to be destroyed. Now, if that is what God thinks of false teachers, then how are we to think about false teachers? If that's God's assessment of those who are spreading false lies concerning the truth by their very lives and by their very words, these are blatant, overtly uh, blasphemers of God, as we will see. If that's how God thinks of them, then how should we think of them? We shouldn't coddle them. We shouldn't cozy up next to them. We shouldn't uh, entertain anything that they say. We should think of them just as God thinks of them. So this is the essence of what we are being warned about. And we ought to have the same indignation against the false as God has. In other words, we ought to love that which is true to such an extent that when we see or when we hear something that is false, something that is blatantly and overtly false, because we all have a tendency at times to be wrong. We're not saying that just because you're wrong about something biblically and, and, and you're trying to gain an understanding and you, you hear truth and you grapple with that truth and it, and it affects you and so you change from one thinking to another thinking. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about blatant false purveyors. When we hear something that is false, it should repulse us. It should you know, cause us to be righteously nauseated, if you will. In other words, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We ought to pray that God would have them removed or seek to have them silenced. In fact, like Peter, we should be so concerned with our care for each other that anyone who is feeding or attempting to feed the poison of falseness to another Christian ought to cause us to be irate with righteous indignation. That's the idea. Each and every one of us ought to have such a passion for truth, such a passion for upholding the Word of God and the holiness that it portrays and that it reveals that any teaching that seeks to poison or destroy one another and thereby destroy the church of God has to be exposed for what it is. We cannot just sit back and let it go. And so what was happening, Peter is saying, what was happening in ancient times, what was Peter was warning about going on in his own day, here we are receiving the same warning for our day. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. There will also be false teachers among us. Now, as you well know, we've already learned several things about false teachers in the first 10 verses of this chapter, right? We learned, number one, that they prowl around in secret. They prowl around in secret, right? They secretly introduce destructive heresies, Peter says in verse 1. In other words, they, they do not appear as they really are. They do not appear as they really are. The very things that they teach, the very personhood that they are, seem to be so right until they are examined in detail. Until you scrutinize and are discriminate about what they are saying and who they are. They prowl around in secret. They don't do it openly. It's not this overtness in many ways. It's a secret thing. They're secretly introducing by what they say heresies. Things that are wrong. Things that are not true of God. I saw just yesterday the silliness of one of the false teachers on TV, one of the TV evangelists tried to, in his church spoke, Kenneth Copeland tried to have people who had baldness on their head, put their hands on their head and rebuke the demon of baldness out of them as if they were going to be healed in that moment. It was absolute foolishness. But, but, it, but it's even more subtle than that. 
that's not secret. That's like, are you an insane person? Are you just absolutely crazy? We would easily see that and go, that's ridiculous. And yet here, Peter says, they secretly introduce. They, they come out with things that are even harder to see, if you will. Secondly, he says their, their MO is to use pleasure. This is their MO, to use pleasure. In other words, they don't appear as they really are, but also what they say and teach ushers in through a kind of pleasure, a kind of peace that you'll gain when in fact there is no peace in what they say. Notice what he says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. That's pleasure. That's, that's their desire for, for anything and everything that will fulfill their flesh. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. There is no peace in what they say. They say there will be. They'll say this is the road of ease and, and success and health and whatever else, and yet it's a lie. And then third, because of their very root, the very root of their wickedness is, is covetousness or greed, as it says in verse 3, and in their greed they exploit you. Because of that, because they're greedy, not for, for you as a person in your spiritual growth, but greedy for you, greedy to get something from you, greedy to take from you, because of that they'll say whatever you want to hear. They'll say whatever will tickle your ears in order to give you whatever choice you might like. Well, that is simply to say that the false teachers will say whatever and all that you might think is good and keep you from hearing the actual truth. The essence that is central to their message is that they are teaching what is really a, a false doctrine in saying that don't worry about it, there is no judgment of God. There is no judgment of God. Christ really isn't going to return at all. Don't worry about it. He's ruling actually on the throne today. He isn't coming back. He's actually saving everybody. Nobody needs to be any different now. Just live as you desire. Live as you like. No day of reckoning is coming. And so why would they say such things? Why would they say that? How do you recognize who that might be? Well, Peter tells us here in verses 10, the second half of 10, all the way through 22, he tells us by identifying, number one, their attitude, and number two, their actions. Their attitude and their actions. We're going to look at this attitude idea this morning in verses 10 through 16, and then next time we'll get into the whole issue of their actions in verse 17 through 22. And there's some overlapping that takes place with, with both of these. But, but I say attitude in this, and, you'll try, and I'll explain why I'm saying that, because it can be difficult for us to identify with clarity by an attitude. Right? We, we want to identify with clarity who a false person might be, a false prophet might be, a false teacher might be, and we say attitude. But it can be difficult to identify that with clarity by attitude because an attitude can easily be misinterpreted. Right? We assume a lot about people and oftentimes, if not all the time, our assumptions about them can be very, very wrong. For example, very often a passionate person in a debate will be labeled as an angry person. They'll be labeled because they're passionate that, they're, that their attitude is angry. They're, they're just an angry person when in fact there's no anger in their heart at all. They're just very passionate about what they have convictions about. And, and so their very attitude in that will be mislabeled and misinterpreted because someone will look at that who's maybe not part of the debate and say, well, that's a bombastic person. That person's very dangerous. Look at their attitude when in fact they're assuming that the quiet person might be not dangerous because they're quiet. Their attitude alone may not be so helpful. And that's why Peter helps us with this by showing us that false teachers can be measured in their attitude, by what they say with their mouths. What they say with their mouths and what they see with their eyes. And I want to look at this together. Notice verses 10 
through 13, he says in the second part of 10, they are daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And stop right there. There is a sense that when you look at teachers from the past and you look at even teachers today, they all seemingly look alike. You look at the outside when you when you look at the church and you look at preachers and teachers in the church from a from a relative perspective, they all appear to be the same. But when they open their mouths to speak, then you hear and see the heart. You hear and see what's going on on the inside. In fact, Jesus even said this of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, when he called them, you brood of vipers, right? You're a brood of vipers. And right after that, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You cannot, you can only for a time disguise the heart. You cannot get away with it for long because out of the heart, you are who you are. In other words, words reflect your heart attitude. Words reflect your heart attitude. And so we have to scrutinize the words. We have to seek to truly understand those words so that we can determine truth from error. This is one of the things we've talked about over the years in our own family when it comes to music, right? People will say a certain kind of music is devil music. And I say, well, how do you know the music is devil music? Music is is amoral. It's music. You can't say a certain beat is devil music or or a certain kind of instrument is devil music. What what makes one ungodly and one godly is the words. Words. We have to scrutinize the words. Words reflect the heart attitude. And so we have to understand the words to determine truth from error. And therefore... False teachers can be measured by what they say. What they say. You notice here in those verses that I read that three times in those verses, Peter describes them in the original language. He describes them with the word blaspheme. Blaspheme. Blaspheme is a word that describes more than just what is said. Blaspheme describes the heart. It describes what's going on in the heart. It describes someone with an irreverence for God and other holy things. This is what Peter is describing here. False teachers have no reverence for that which is of the holy realm. Of course, in our text, it talks about angelic majesties. Now, some of you are saying, as you're looking at your Bible, I don't see the word blaspheme in my Bible in those verses. And when you read it, Pastor, you didn't read the word blaspheme in those verses, and you are right. The translators have shown it in the word revile or reviling. In the original language, that is the word blaspheme. So what does revile mean? Well, we don't use it much in our modern language today. You don't hear people going around saying, oh, they're a reviling person. You might hear it from time to time, but it's very, very rare. But it speaks of someone with a disparaging way. Their their entire countenance, their entire way of life is disparaging. In other words, they put something else down. They speak of other things with irreverence. That's just a general idea of reviling. To speak with an attitude Uh, that is described actually here in verse 10 by those first three phrases. They are daring, self-willed, they do not tremble. That's that's a, a reviler, that's a blasphemer. That's the hard attitude, being daring, 
and self-will. They're not, their will isn't driven by something outside of them, it's driven by them. And this is why they're daring. They're, they're daring God to, to in, in by what they say and how they live, they are challenging God, the very one whose truth they are proclaiming they know something about. So from the text, it says that they were speaking in this reviling way, this blasphemous way about, literally, in the original language, literally glorious things, or things of glory, or, or glorious ones. That's, that's the whole terminology that we read in our verse 10 as angelic majesties. The original language is, it's glorious things. Things that are glorious, things that are of the glorious realm, or, or, or even could mean glorious ones. And it's difficult from the original grammar and the original language to determine exactly, in a specific way, who the false teachers are reviling. Who are they speaking against in this irreverent way? In other words, what are the glorious things that they're going against. The translators in our scriptures have told us angelic majesties. That's how they have kind of come to their their own understanding of this text. And they do that particularly because verse 11 says we're angels, and the word there is messenger in the original language, so it could be angels, could be other messengers, but, but it's hard to pin it down. And there are discussions about what this might be declaring even today within evangelicalism. Because some say that because of the fact that they are despising authority, you notice that in verse 10, these are those who, especially those who are indulged the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. You notice that's their characteristic. They have no desire for authority over them. Because of that phrase, some will say they're speaking of those who are in leadership in the church that they're reviling uh, those who have put in, been put in a place by God in this position in which they are uh, ruling or set as leaders in the church. They are putting down and speaking irreverently against the church uh, leaders. And in the early church, uh, this would be Peter saying they're speaking against those who are leading in the early church and Throughout the ages, that's how it would go. Others say, just as the translators have put it here, they're speaking against angels or other angelic or glorious messengers, right? Well, which one is it? Well, we cannot be dogmatic about where we land on that because the text isn't as clear as we'd like it to be. But what we do know from the text is that in contrast, it says that angels, in verse 11, don't even do what they do. In other words, here is what false teachers do. They are daring, self-willed, and they don't even tremble. They have no fear, and angels don't even do that. This is the contrast that Peter is making. So here are those angels who are greater in power, greater in might, and even they aren't so arrogant, even they aren't so self-willed that they would do what these false teachers do. That's how serious it is. It's no small thing. And so we say, well, okay, so what are you saying, Peter? Well, he is simply making it clear to us that we can learn a lot about false teachers simply by tuning into what they say. Simply by tuning in to, to how they say it and the secretness of it and the, the, the imprecision of it. False teachers have a clear disdain for anyone who is obediently standing with the Word of God. Angels wouldn't even do that. They revile anything. They revile anyone who is rightly dividing and standing with absolute truth. And in doing so, Peter says they are simply displaying the animalistic instinct of irrational creatures. Notice verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals. 
In other words, the very fact that they revile and blaspheme, the very fact that they speak what they do in subtle ways and sometimes in overt ways, like I shared about Kenneth Copeland, clearly shows that they don't have any sense. They are irrational people. They have no understanding what they're doing. So Peter says, like unreasoning animals, they are creatures of instinct born to be captured and killed because they're reviling, he says in verse 12, where they have no knowledge. No knowledge. In other words, they don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even know what they're talking about. These false teachers don't even know what they're reviling. What they say is senseless. It's irrational. It's nonsense, just like I shared with you. By the way, just turn over for a moment. We're going to go, go here in our next study after Second Peter because it's a parallel book. But just turn over to Jude. Because notice what Jude says. Notice what Jude says in Jude verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. And so verse 11 says, woe to them. Woe to them. But Jude's saying the same thing. And so Peter, back in verse 12, says, but these, these false teachers, by what they say, by what they revile, they show themselves to be just like unreasoning animals. Listen, as much as we want to think so in our own humanness and our own love for animals, animals do not reason. Animals do not reason. I was thinking about this this morning as I was thinking through this text. I have animals in my home that, that I would like to think reason. I would like to think they, they think about how to please and, and how to want to please my wife and I, and yet they only respond to stimuli. They do not reason at all. They only respond to what they are offered. They are completely instinctual. In fact, they make no intellectually reasoned contribution to the world at all. Now, I'm not saying animals don't make a contribution to the world. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying they make no intellectually reasoned contribution to the world. They're not thinking with reason. They're only responding. That's what Peter is saying about false teachers. They're just like animals. Living by instinct. Making no intellectually reasoned contribution to anyone. Think about that. False teachers, when they speak, when they introduce their destructive heresies, are making no intellectually reasoned contribution to anyone. They have no knowledge of what they speak about. None of us would rightly listen to them. And in fact, in the end, they'll only be destroyed by the holy God. Notice verse 12, they will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. You realize that? When God destroys the earth by fire, as Peter will get into in chapter 3, those False teachers, in like manner, will also be destroyed. They're going to get caught up in their own trap. They are kindling for the judgment fire of God. That's what they are. When God consumes the world, when God consumes all of the unreasoning creatures that He has created for our enjoyment, He's going to consume false teachers also. In fact, it's, a, it's interesting in the original language, when you look at the last phrase of verse 12 in the original language, it says this, in their destroying, they shall be destroyed. That's the literal sense in which it says it. In their destroying, 
they shall be destroyed. That is simply to say that the very destruction that they are bringing, the very stuff that they confuse and lead others astray from the truth with, is the very poison that they offer is going to be the very poison that kills them. Reading this week, one commentator said it this way. I thought he put it succinctly. He said, quote, the destructive work that they do as they lead people to destruction through their witless, non-reasoning stupidity and living off of their own passionate instincts, as they consume others in that operation, they will themselves be consumed, unquote. I like the way he says that. Their witless, non-reasoning stupidity. That's a great way to describe a false teacher. And so Peter says in verse 13, they are suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They are suffering wrong as the very payment for which they have done their wrong. It's very vivid, isn't it? Very vivid picture that Peter writes there. It's almost jaw-dropping. You almost sit there stunned as you read it. They get what they have earned. They get what they have earned. What they have given, they are getting in return. Here's another way that the Bible says that. You sow what you reap. You sow what you reap. So if you are a willful perpetrator of lies, if you're a willful perpetrator of that which is false, the destruction that you bring by it will come upon you. We must not forget that reality. We must not forget the axiom of life that is a reality. Time and truth do and will always march together. Time and truth always march together. The late William Barclay put it this way, quote, to put it quite simply and bluntly. I love when a pastor gets blunt. Put it quite simply and bluntly. The glutton destroys his appetite in the end. The drunkard ruins his health. The sensualist destroys his own body. The self-indulgent ruins his own character and his own peace of mind. The man who dedicates himself to these things is seeking for pleasure. For a while he may enjoy what he calls pleasure, but in the end he ruins his health, he wrecks his constitution, he destroys his mind and his character, and he begins the experience of hell while he is still on earth. Unquote. I'd say that's pretty blunt. That's pretty blunt. That's a blunt description of false teachers. They are living hell. And so this is the attitude of false teachers. This is the attitude seen through what they say. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But Peter goes on because he says we can also see their attitude through what they see. Through what they see. And by see, when I say what they see, I mean what they pursue. What they pursue. What they go after. Verse 13 says, Notice, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And it seems, again, rather shocking. You would think that anyone who wants to introduce things that are false, anyone who wants to perpetuate that which is false, would seek to carry out that kind of sin in the shadows. Seek to carry it out behind closed doors, in the darkness, if you will. But the false teacher is so brazen, so daring, so self-willed, so arrogant that they do it in the full light of day. The full light of day. You read any history of Roman society back when Peter was living and writing these words, even the Romans considered Think about it, the Roman society, we all know it to be this ancient debauched society that God finally had to remove as ruling on the earth. But even the Romans considered blatant sin during the day the most vile kind of wickedness. 
In other words, anyone who would go out and just blatantly be sinful was the most vile kind of wickedness if it was encountered during the day. But this is what false teachers are. They don't care. They are daring. They are self-willed. They do not tremble at all. They are driven by one thing, their own lustful passions wherever and whenever they can. And so they are described here by Peter with these graphic terms. They are stains and blemishes. You notice that in verse 13? They are stains and blemishes. In other words, they are clearly visible. They're clearly visible. They are dirty stains and defects. That's what a blemish is. It's a defect. When something has a defect, it's described as being blemished. My wife and I, years ago, when we had a home in Ohio, we went to, we were remodeling the kitchen and we went to the scratch and dent store to get some appliances. Why? Because those were cheaper because they had a blemish on them of some kind. It didn't really matter where it was. In fact, we bought a really nice stove, double oven that had a dent in the housing in the back of the stove that went in the wall. Everything else was perfect, but it was blemished. And so we got it that way. It was clear that something was wrong. This is the way false teachers are described here. They are stains and blemishes. They have defect. And so they are those They are these dirt-spotted blemishes reveling in their deceptions out in the open. They're just reveling in them. You say, what does Peter mean by that? Well, he means that they are living out in full view all of their sinful pleasures, all of their blatant sensuality for everybody to see. They don't care doesn't matter if there's a scandal with them. It doesn't matter if it's some sexual scandal or some blatant uh, financial scandal as we have seen throughout the history of the church. They're dragging those under their influence into the same kind of scandals. They don't care about it for them and they don't care about it if it's attached to you. They just live it out. They're like the center of a sinful tornado sweeping across the evangelical landscape and they suck others in. They suck them into their centrifuge of deception and lies into the same kind of deceptions. They're dangerous people. Why? Because they are not far away. They're not far away. Notice what Peter says. They are deceptions, Peter says, They're reveling in their deceptions, notice, as they carouse where? With you. As they carouse with you. They're not far away. They're close by. They're together with us. They're close by with us. It isn't as if we're talking about something that's that's away. This This is something that's in and around us. And they, they are reveling in those. They're, they're clear in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They say, come along, be with us. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery. He just keeps adding on uh, character after character after character quality. They have eyes full of adultery. What does eyes full of adultery mean? Well, it means that no matter who they look at, no matter who they look at, they see them as a potential option for them. In other words, they have no control over their sensual impulses. They're so stained in their heart, so stained in their own thinking, that every woman or man becomes a personal object of their desire. That's how vile it is. We, we, we've, this may shock you, but we have seen that here in this church. We have seen an individual try to come into this church and try to uh, be part of this church whose intent was simply one thing, just to, to pursue, to try to get their hooks into someone. 
Fortunately, we recognized it right away. But it happens. They're around. Sadly, this person tried to do it a second time under disguise. Literally. Under disguise. We caught them. We caught them. They're no longer here. Why Why did they try that? Because they have no control over their own sensual impulse. No control. They're so stained in their eyes that every woman or man becomes an object for them. And that desire is never satisfied, verse 14 says. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They're out of control. They're totally out of control. Always wanting more. Always desiring more. Always needing more to fulfill the sensual desire of the heart. And it's bad enough that they would ruin their own lives. It's bad enough that they would go headlong into sin and their own lives be a life of destruction. But notice they entice unstable souls, it says in verse 15. Unstable souls. I love that Peter says that because he says the souls that are enticed are unstable ones. Those that are stable don't get drawn in. The only thing that brings us stability is truth. You know the truth, you'll have a stability. You know the truth, your faith will be strong. You know the truth, you will not fear the things you should not fear. You know the truth, you will not follow the things you should not follow. You will not be enticed. Why? Because you're saturated, you're soaked in the truth. You're not an unstable soul. simply means that they don't care about you. False teachers don't care about you. All they care about is what they can get from you. What you offer them. How they can advance themselves on your very life. Why? Why? Because they're trained in greed. You notice verse 14, having a heart trained in greed. This is, this is what's reflected by what they say and what they are looking at, what they are after, what they're pursuing. A heart of greed. A heart of greed. We saw that even in the previous verses. right? Verse 3, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Remember, we talked about that. They exploit the emporium. They, they, they give you a, a whole amalgam of choices based upon how they shape their words. That's what false words means there. The plastos. They shape their words in order to get you to want what they are offering because it's all about them. It's all about greed. They're trained in greed. Their heart is trained in it. People who are unstable in their faith because they, by their own lack of desire, by their own willingness, will not establish themselves in the truth. They're unstable in doctrine. Those are easily drawn into errors by the enticements of false teachers. In fact, the word entice here, in the original language here, entice is the word delease, D-E-L-E-A-Z, if you want to spell it in English, delease. It means to catch with bait. That's the idea. They catch with bait. In other words, what they say and what they are is always in disguise. It's always a fishing lure. It looks like something else until you're on the hook. And it's too late. It's always enticing. But they never catch those who are strong in the Word. Why? Because those who are strong in the Word have overcome the evil one. First John tells us, you're strong in the Word, you've overcome the evil one, and so what do they do? They seek out the weak. They seek out the weak. They entice. They use bait. It looks good, it's painted nice. 
looks like the real thing, but it's not real. And you only find out after it's too late. You seek out those who don't know the truth. You seek out the unstable, and they suck you in. And then verses 15 and 16 give us an example from the Old Testament of such a person. This is an example. There are cursed children, verse 14 says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You want to know what a false teacher does? You want to know what a false teacher looks like? Then go ahead and read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. Read the entire account of Balaam, a prophet of Israel. A prophet of Israel. Balaam, more than any other prophet in Israel's history, completely set his mouth and eyes and heart on forsaking God's ways. You say, how so? Well, when a foreign king, the king of Moab, offered him great amounts of money in order to curse Israel, he initially said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he goes and does it. He eventually gives in. And in fact, he was the religious voice of Israel that led to Israel's intermixing with the foreign Moabites nation which of course was against the law of God. You say, how do you know that? Well, I'll just show you this really quickly. Go back to Numbers chapter 31. It's just, I'll just look at this one verse. We'll just read it. This isn't me making it up. Numbers 31. Notice what verse 16 says. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, what was the sin? You can go back to Genesis 22 through 24 and read the reality, the intermixing with the Moabites. They were to take out the Moabites. Balak knew that king of the Moabites, and he got Balaam to cause Israel to sin by not taking them out, and they intermixed. They intermixed with the people. So what was Balaam? Balaam was an arrogant, self-willed, in-your-face reveler just like the false teachers, he rejected the authority of God's word. And in Numbers 22 through 24, we notice he was only stopped by a false, stopped in his false preaching by a donkey whom God allowed to talk. What became of Balaam? What became of Balaam? Well, Balaam. He was killed by messengers of God who were living in the midst of the godless city. In fact, if you're still there, Numbers 31, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites, in verse 1. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people saying, Our men... From among you for the war that we must go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And so a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to war. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, to the war with them and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. And so they made war against Midian. And as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Eva, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Wait a minute, he was a prophet of Israel. Yes, 
but the evil that he was perpetuating came back upon him. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all the cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. And then they burned all the cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. And they took all their spoil and all their prey, both man and of beast. And they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and Eliezer the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. But what, is Mo, what does Moses do? Moses and Eliezer, the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet outside the camp. Okay, they had their war. They took out Midian. They bring the spoil back. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? What are you doing? You spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. What are you doing? You, you, you brought back to us the very thing that was part of the problem. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones. For those of us who are shocked with that, that's children. And kill every woman who has known a man intimately. All the girls who have not known a man intimately, spare for yourselves. You camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person, whoever touched the slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day, and you shall purify for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of the goat's hair and all the articles of wood. And Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone out to battle, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses only the gold and the silver, the bronze and the iron, the tin and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean. But it shall be purified with water for impurity. But whatever can't stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. You shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterward, you may enter the camp. God was saying, listen, you follow the false prophet, you follow the false teacher, you follow this one who is daring, self-willed, and after himself, perpetuating his own lies, going after what I said you should not do. Listen, it's going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble. God's the only one who cleaned it up. So what have we learned? What have we learned? I think we can summarize it this way. Straying from the truth is very dangerous. Straying from the truth is very dangerous. In fact, it could cost you not only your life, but your very soul. This is what Peter is warning us against. Straying from the truth is very dangerous. False teachers... Bible says you will know them by their fruit. You know them by what they say. You know them by what they pursue. That's their attitude. That's their attitude. They are unrighteous, just like Balaam. And we'll get more next time in reference to their actions. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you have given us this instruction this morning. Even though it's hard for us to take, even though it's hard for us to hear, even though it's shocking in its intent and shocking in its reality, we, we know that you despise those who misinterpret and misrepresent your truth. And we thank you for warning us about the attitude of false teachers. And we can see it in what they say. We can see it in how they live, what they seek. And so, Lord, we... We are grateful that you protect us. And we ask that you would protect us all from those kinds of ravenous 
animals, only seeking what their father seeks to devour. We thank you that in the end, time and truth march together. Time and truth are always victorious, and those who stand against you are nothing better than unreasoning animals. We know that one day they will all be captured, they will all be killed, and that your kingdom will come and it will be established and fulfilled with all truth. And so this morning we acknowledge your warning to us. And we ask for insight that we might be able to take these truths and apply them in our individual lives that we might see if there be those who are, who, who are speaking lies and seeking lies, help us to apply it to know who is speaking truth, those who are representing you and those who are not. And we'll give you all the glory in all of it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.